Welcome to our podcast. If you enjoy this segment, we encourage you to check out the others. Also, if you're new to Hedgeye, you qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back. This time, I get to spend some time with one of my favorite people in the business, one of my good friends who has had a similar path as I, and I think that that's why we speak uh, along the same wavelengths and don't confuse each other. Uh, Daniel Lacaye, welcome back to the summit. Hi, thank you very much, Keith. Always a pleasure. I think you were, I, I'm pretty sure you're one of the first people that we had at the first summit. And, uh, and over Absolutely. the year... And, and, and I think over the years, many people have gotten to know you uh, quite well and, 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 and see uh, how diligent you are on Twitter, just you know, communicating your process. You're not one of these people that just kind of flies in on a helicopter, pops in and out. You're always there. And, and that's really the story of our lives in this profession, is it not? Like we, we, we are uh, you know, bolted to the chair. We're there. Uh, and you worked at Citadel. You're a hedge fund manager. You're very well versed in a lot of different things, including the energy space. But when I want to have a conversation today, I'm like, if I need to talk to somebody about the Fed, inflation expectations, what is, you know, what is the forward outlook of inflation on a longer-term basis versus short-term, and what is the Fed actually doing, I'm like, i got to call Lakaye. You know, the guy knows. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're going to have an informed view. So let's just start with that. I just had a great conversation with the bond strategist, George. He was talking about you know, getting towards two on the tenure. I'm looking at you know, your most recent tweets. It's like, of course, uh, Lakaye says rate hangover when the tenure hits 2%. So um, I think we're talking about the same level of interest rates. What do you mean by that, the rate hangover? Well, the rate hangover is basically that uh, what we have seen in the last uh, two years in particular is that uh, central banks and uh, investment banks have been leading investors to bet on one thing and the opposite at the same time. Now, <clears throat> one thing is that central banks will continue to inject liquidity and rates will be perennially low, while at the same time betting on a strong recovery and a healthy increase in inflation. So you basically have this situation by which what would be considered by anyone a normal event, which is that bond yields creep up a little bit as the economy uh, grows and the, uh, and the inflation outlook uh, improves somewhat, becomes a big threat for markets. But, but that is basically just because too many people were betting on one thing and the opposite, yeah. which, is, which is growth plus extreme liquidity and low rates. Well, the, um, the bet on, and George and I were talking about this as well, that big deflationary bet at precisely the wrong time, you know, when, yeah. the, when interest rates you know, were at the most negative point, obviously, on the European side, but quite literally at the low in the U.S., this is when you saw things like Gold Peak, you saw you know, duration-heavy portfolios outperform. Uh, those found their way into mega-cap stocks, which people had to crowd into them in August. It was interesting. In, in August, as you know, um, those five mega-cap stocks and, and gold and long-term bonds were the best portfolio you could have had. So now, here we are today, and that's a big-time offside portfolio that is latent, I think, in terms of deflationary expectations, because you just had something that was not deflation from there. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What we've had is, is a double effect. No? Already, during that period of time that you were mentioning, um, the 
goods and services that we purchase on a day-to-day basis were already rising faster than real wages and than real disposable income. So there was already an underlying factor of inflation embedded uh, in education, healthcare, fresh food, you name it. No? Uh, but now what we're seeing is on top of that is the base effect. Is you have the base effect of the reopening, the impact of uh, some of the supply chains being negative, negatively affected by the lockdowns and the rise of commodities. So you have that double, that double effect. And I think that what you're seeing right now is that the idea that we would have uh, no inflationary pressures from the massive liquidity injections uh, of 2020, which were, in all, for all purposes, actually historically high. No, so mm-hmm. I think that uh, that level of money supply growth added to those, you know, subdued inflationary pressures that we had seen in the past. Uh, have created the situation that we're living right now, which is pretty evident, I think, in in uh, in the in bond yields and investors are actually uh, taking action relative to to that uh, evidence. No. Yeah, and what blows people's minds on that that money supply growth, and you've heard it. You know, there is a chorus of people that have written books that are far less uh, practitioner oriented as the one the many that you've written at this point. You know, they they, they think that the long term trend downward trend in bond yields, which George just showed everybody one more time, and I mean like, you know, again, the 30-year downtrend, to a series of lower highs in inflation and a series of lower highs in bond yields, they think that the mother of all inflations was always coming and that the money supply and the money printing was going to create that. And they still believe that today. Of course, if you're going to go to your grave with with a belief, you know, you're going to keep going. Now, what do you say to that? Well, I think that we need to understand that disinflationary pressures, for example, in uh, due to technology, due to aging of the population, due to overcapacity, and the fact that when you inject so much liquidity and it goes fundamentally to uh, perpetuate bloated government spending, those are disinflationary pressures and they mm-hmm. will continue to be so. And I think that another important factor here is to understand the disinflationary impact of high debt. Uh, is that the higher the level of debt that we uh, that that countries build once the the economy starts to recover after a crisis leads to disinflationary pressures coming from the fact obviously that most liquidity injections and most actions from central banks and from governments are there to perpetuate that uh, that level of debt and deficit spending so the point that I'm that I'm trying to make is that what we're seeing right now is likely to uh, we're likely going to see headline CPI uh, come back somewhat after the base effect reduce that level of uh, of of uh, pressure that we're seeing right now. However, however, we cannot forget that before COVID-19 there was already an important divergence between headline CPI and the perception of cost of living by the majority of citizens. If you remember, mm-hmm. we discussed that actually, that, that we had seen protests in France, in Germany, in Chile, in, in, in Turkey, in so many countries about the rising cost of living, while at the same time central banks were talking about no inflation. And obviously that comes back to the point that I made before, is that the goods and services that we purchase on a daily basis 
and I think that the point was shown today, for example, in the in the eurozone inflation. Eurozone inflation came at 0.9% for February. However, all of the all of the most important uh, components, the things that we actually buy on a day-to-day basis, were up 1.5, 1.6%, and it came down because of energy. However, in the case of inflation in the eurozone. If you add taxes and surcharges, very few European citizens have seen uh, a fall in their energy bills. So I think that that's what's happening. That and that is and and the long-term disinflationary pressures that we that have been built because of efficiency, because of aging, because of technology, those have not changed. I think, uh, guys, I don't know if you still have George's chart on uh, disinflation, just that slide 13, just so that uh, people that are watching this segment you know, know what I'm referring to. This is emblazoned in people's minds like Daniel and I because we're just math geeks and paying attention to long-term cycles, but also the cyclical inflations within long-term cycles. And, and, and that, yeah. to me, I mean, you nailed it, demographics, debt, deficits. I mean, it's easy to remember 3Ds right there. I mean, the 3D risk associated um, with all of this stuff. I guess when people, um, let's just take it one more step and then we'll go, go to a new, new topic. But I, I want to make sure that we park this because I get tons of people at this point saying this is the, first of all, I'm long inflation. I have been long inflation since June. And so my question is, when the hell do I get out of it? I have some questions to you about that. I'm starting to see some early signals on that, as are you. Um, but I have this other community that's like, oh, I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. MMT. That's the thing that's going to uh, really do it this time, Keith. And, you know, what do you think about that? Okay, let's start with uh, let's start with when do I think it will start to roll back? I think that the the base effect that we're seeing right now on headline CPI will uh, be offset between June and September. So the same abrupt uh, upward moves that we have seen in the first uh, part of the year because of the comparison year on year will be negatively affected by the same comparison year on year in the se- in that part of the year. Agreed. MMT, MMT as an inflationary uh, as a highly inflationary uh, um, policy. Well, obviously it is. You know, anyone that lives in Argentina, <laughs> anyone, you know, if you decide to, if you the the thing the thing that makes quantitative easing relatively safe for savers and for wages is that the mechanisms of uh, the transmission of monetary policy have a number of backstops in which consumers and borrowers have the ability to stop the inflationary pressures of money supply growth which is the credit mechanism. You you can put all of the liquidity out there to make people borrow more, but if you don't borrow more, then the disinflationary pressures uh, remain. So that's that's what what keeps quantitative easing as inflationary on uh, financial assets, bonds, equities, etc., but not inflationary on prices for goods and services of consumers, at least at a headline CPI level. What's the problem with MMT? The problem with MMT is that it break, it completely breaks the transmission mechanism of monetary policy. It, it subverts the credit mechanism and basically just throws money at government to spend it in any shape or form. Okay. Now, the problem with the bet of MMT as being hugely inflationary is when and how. 
and this is the key to me, is that the risk that people take, because we're, we live on a, on a, as, as investors on a month-to-month basis, on a year-to-year basis, the problem is when and how. And the when is that at first, hmm, the inflationary uh, pressures uh, don't seem very evident. It when when you start to see the breakup of the confidence in the uh, in the fiat currency that the government is printing nonstop, that is when you create massive inflationary pressures. But the point about MMT and its impact on inflation is it's absolutely disastrous effect on uh, investors. Hmm? Think mm-hmm. about. Venezuela, think about Argentina, etc. You look at what a fantastic return you've made out of those <laughs> uh, equity uh, markets in any real currency. Okay, so the the point uh, is, be very very careful about betting on cyclical stocks and the companies that actually are the most negatively impacted by something like MMT, which are the rent-seeking uh, businesses, what the, what some many people call value sectors. Value sectors actually are absolutely decimated by MMT, as we have seen in those countries. Why? Because inflation creeps up, they cannot pass the inflation increase to consumers, they lose money, the goods and services that they import are much more expensive, they don't export more because they're less efficient, and they just uh, go down and uh, get destroyed. So if I was an investor believing that MMT will be uh, implemented, and we can say why that will not happen in the United States, uh, in my opinion, um, I would very, I would very much recommend not to uh, invest through the sectors that will be obliterated by MMT, yeah. which is what they have done in yeah. any country in which they have been implemented. You know, the, the oil companies, the uh, rent rent seeking businesses, the uh, the traditional value or uh, conglomerates. Hmm? Well, that. Um you know, it's interesting, and, and you've said this, of, of, of all your, uh, if there was a king, a Spanish king of one-liners, I mean, the best one-liner on MMT, for those of you that don't know, modern monetary theory, Lacaya <laughs> says, is not modern, nor is it a theory. And, you know, so, because, again, Absolutely. It's, it's, it, and, and again, I think you're, you're just bringing to life, and it's interesting, because you know, in Stephanie Kelton's book, which I'm sure you've read, or and I try to read all all of the propaganda just because I want to understand their perspective. I think it's an important thing to do. Um, and there are some good, like good punching points that they land in there, but not one of the one of them is not where they say, "Hey, look, they did it in Argentina." I mean, she she wrote that. I was like, I, I had a, uh, I was drinking a bottle of wine. I just finished it at that point in the chapter. I'm just sitting here saying, this is not a good example. Um, so. There's, <laughs> and the not new part, that's what you mean by that, obviously. So can you, can, can we, do you think it's fair, you, you're familiar with my four quadrant model, um, you know, quad two yeah. is the good kind of inflation and growth because you have real growth accelerating, you have inflation accelerating, yeah. but you have real growth. I think what you say yeah. is, just to make this as, and I, I want to simplify the complex, is that what MMT does is that it perpetuates quad three or economic stagflation, and stagflation uh, is very bad. Absolutely. You you know, uh, it's the best summary out there. Uh, MMT is 
the most aggressive and uh, abrupt means of expropriating the real wealth of a country in <laughs> favor of political spending. That says it all. That says everything. So you basically are consistently and constantly eroding the purchasing power of real uh, goods and services uh, and uh, oh, sorry, of, of real wages and salaries. And at the same time, as an investor, as a long term investor, if you're a company, what you're being is expropriated in the short term and in the long term from any profit that you might generate out of an investment via, via fiscal policy with very high taxes and via monetary policy via inflation. So the uh, so you're absolutely right is that the problem with MMT is that it basically uh, basically for, doesn't forget they know I mean obviously they know but the 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 problem with MMT first as I said it's not modern and it's not a theory it's been implemented for <laughs> centuries since Nero decided to tweak uh, the amount of silver in the coins for that it paid the army with and uh, since the assignats and so many other uh, examples in the past but the point is the following when you are constantly forgetting the first and most important thing about money creation money creation is never neutral it disproportionately benefits the first recipient of money government and the indebted sectors and it obviously disproportionately negatively affects real wages and salaries. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when you break the transmission mechanism of monetary policy that allows consumers and savers to reduce the inflationary pressure, and you simply pass all of the money creation directly to government spending, the perverse incentive to malinvest and the perverse incentive to uh, bloat the sectors that don't need it at the expense of the ones that are actually producing is enormous. And you come back to the point, it has been implemented, it has been implemented numerous times with always the same result, which is stagflation and a constant erosion of the long-term investment in the economy. Because obviously any investor that is looking at a, to, to, to build a plant or to, to, to put an investment in place that looks at its uh, net present value and sees that inflation is going to erode the net present value monstrously, but uh, taxation is also going to uh, erode the net present value. You just simply don't invest for the long term, which is what happens in Argentina, which is what happens in so many other countries that you just simply cannot take the not the risk. You cannot take the certainty that the government will always try to cover its imbalances by destroying further the purchasing power of real wages and salaries. I think, again, for those of you that are, are taking good notes, I mean, you're learning a lot now. Sub subverting the, the credit mechanism, expropriating the purchasing power of the people, write it down. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, ask your professors, ask your friends, the people that are just, you know, on voyages, you know, intellectually talking about all this stuff. We need to have answers on why that's what you just said is not the case. And yeah. my fear here is that that discussion given... And Grant Williams, who you know, I, I think, uh, you know, did a wonderful job yesterday explaining the sad reality that we can't actually have objective debates anymore. You know, the, yeah. the, the civil you know, debate or the civil discord you know, has been broken. And, and, and I, sadly, that is true. So guys like you and I, 
are not yeah. going to have a debate with Stephanie Kelton. They're going no. to do it, and we're going to sit mm -hmm. here, rotate on it, and like it. Now, what do you think? You're going to have to do it in Spain, and I'm in the, you know, the Canadian Irish guy here, and has to do it in America. But do you think that there's any way out other than it just failing on itself? Um, unfortunately, the people that uh, are confronted with all of these things that we have just mentioned will go and say two things. No, the first one is they will end any debate by saying, you know, nothing about money. OK, there you go. Huh? Coming from people that are saying that the magic money tree uh, sorts out everything. <laughs> Second, they'll say this time is different. And this and those two elements basically justify any insanity that is presented to a government <laughs> but if but the more important thing is that if there is an absolutely intellectually dishonest approach to this which is how lucrative it is to go to a government and say oh come on you don't have to worry about deficits you don't have to worry about spending you are not like the uh, an average uh, government in a in another country no you're god <laughs> and I am going to show you how to play God. Huh? And obviously, when it fails, because this, let's remember that these people advised Venezuela, Argentina, Ecuador, etc., etc., etc. When it fails, they go back, they go back home, yeah? and they say, uh, it wasn't done properly. Let's do it again. So this is the problem that, that you have, is that, is that, going out there and saying it's worth trying even worse the argument that you will hear and that people that are listening to us watching us right now will hear is the following oh if it's good to give money to banks and to uh, and to equity markets why is it not good to give money to the people what a stupid thing to say first you're not giving money to the people. You're taking money away from the people. You are diluting real wages and and uh, their savings. Second, that doesn't justify quantitative easing either. We have been criticizing you and I, so many of us. We have been criticizing the excessive monetary policy for years. So the the problem is this idea that oh, so you agree on giving money to banks, as if banks kept them somewhere safe, like, uh, I don't know, Uncle Scrooge, uh, and uh, instead of giving it to the people. And the fact that it's called quantitative easing for the people is the biggest uh, subversion of language one can imagine, because it's against the people. Yeah, and think it's about this. Brutal. brutal. It is brutal. Think about this. Once that is in place, and the government is issuing all of the currency that it wants to expropriate the wealth of the country. Ask yourself one question. What are you going to do with that currency when you receive it from your uh, work? You're going to exchange it for gold, for anything, for Bitcoin, name it. Anything else, anything else than keeping it, knowing that it will be worth 40, 50 percent less at the end of the year, which is what happens in Argentina. So the, I come back to the point of this, of this uh, dangerous idea is the reason why it's dangerous is, the, is because once it's implemented, governments will never go back on it. Governments never say, oh, gosh, we made a mistake. Inflation is through the roof. Everything is gone. No, because they use they when inflation rises, who do they blame? They blame 
the business owners. Yeah. When uh, when uh, the purchasing power of goods and services collapses and uh, people get poorer, then what do they say? Oh, we are the solution. We're going to give you a subsidy. A subsidy with what? With an useless currency. And people say, well, the United States has been printing money for years and nothing happens. Hold on a second. This is the key point. That is the most fallacious comment I've heard in my life. The increase in money supply of Argentina or Venezuela is multiple times that of the United States. And the Federal Reserve so far is the only central bank in the world that looks at the real demand of dollars globally when issuing uh, when issuing new notes of credit or uh, when increasing money supplies. The only one. So therefore, that's the reason why the DXY, the dollar index, remains in a very tight range between 90 to 100, more or less, for years. Because they're constantly looking at the real demand out there of dollars. Emerging markets increase their uh, debt in uh, dollar uh, denominated assets, then they can increase uh, the money supply a little bit further. So they're not follow they're not doing what the MMT uh, uh, proponents say. What the MMT proponents say is the following. They say, when governments increase their debt and increase their deficits, they are, and kid you not, creating savings. What the, what an absolute nonsense. They are creating savings. And therefore, by creating savings, they are uh, incentivizing the economy. So demand and supply of money go in tandem. That is complete nonsense. Absolute nonsense, which because a currency is as subject to supply and demand as any other goods and service. If you increase money supply well above the demand of that currency, then the destruction of the confidence in that currency and in the central bank is inevitable. What I think people are sitting there thinking to themselves now is that you're explaining to them what they couldn't potentially explain to themselves. Now, if, if what's ironic about this this shot of you, and we've had many conversations over the years, there are two books, at least that I can see behind your right shoulder or to my left, that really have addressed this. The first mm. on the right is Life and Financial Markets that you wrote, which mm. is you've taken the way that you're talking about this is what happens in the real world. What happens mm. in the real world from a purchasing powers perspective, from purchasing power perspective, or from a consumer's expectations or a business. Uh, builder's expectations of future profits. All these things are real-world things, but you also learn these things by trading and risk-managing financial markets. And then mm. the book on, to the left of that that you have, which is, again, the Freedom and Equality book, kind of gets to the point where the thing that is upsetting everyone, whether they be Bitcoin maxis or not, or be people that just don't trust that this MMT thing is neither modern nor a theory, is that they don't know, but they know it's wrong, and they're yeah. looking for something to change that inequality gap. Yeah. I don't think there's any data to support wherever the printing was done or wherever the handouts were made. There is anywhere, any data to support that the U.S. inequality gap in particular hasn't widened as we've increased the VIG and increased the bet. Hmm. Absolutely. I think that's, and this is again coming back to the the uh, intellectually dishonest discussion about MMT is that they complain about inequality and they want to uh, address inequality by implementing the most unequal policy that can be made. 
which is artificial money creation. Artificial money creation, I come back to the point, money creation is never neutral. This, they have to tattoo this on their, I don't know, wherever they want. <laughs> uh, money creation is never neutral. It's, it always disproportionately benefits the first recipient of money and always disproportionately hurts the last recipient of money, which is real wages and salaries. Money creation, artificial money creation, always generates inequality. Ah, the question here is that they don't like inequality when it is that bond or equity investors make a bit more money, which, by the way, doesn't hurt any of the two others because real wages and, and, and savers, at least they, those people can save and put some money in the market. Okay, But they're very happy with the idea that monster inequality will come from, politi from political adhesion. Ah, very interesting. So it's not, an, it's not about uh, reducing inequality. It's about engineering politically adhered inequality, which is a different thing. Uh, I mean, if you want to go and uh, relive uh, living in Poland in the 1980s, or you want to pick a country, it's not just Argentina. Like you said, this is not new. This is not new. No, but, but remember, the UK... Because everybody, this is another problem with the debate about MMT. So they say, oh, come on, Argentina, Venezuela, Poland, Turkey. No, we're talking about serious countries like, uh, like, uh, like the UK, yeah. like the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom used to be the world reserve currency, the, the British pound. You forget that for years, the United Kingdom was... Uh, considered, I remember Henry Kissinger used to say that the UK was bound to beg, borrow or steal uh, because of its uh, massive problem with inflation and uh, the disaster on the economy. And it wasn't until, it, until, until sound money policies and sound budget policies were implemented that the thing started to change. But, you know, we, and, and again, I come back to the point, it happened in Germany, it happened in France, it's happened in, it, it, well, by the way, it was happening in all of the southern European countries uh, that uh, had their own currency before they joined the euro. In Spain, no, in Spain, we went from uh, a 20% devaluation to a 20% devaluation every so often years, and unemployment remained above 20%, the economy was a disaster. I mean, as long as everybody doesn't know, they won't know. You know yeah. You're, you're, that's, you, know, you said it's fallacious. I mean, I, to me, it's preying on, on unawareness. It's, um, it's at, the, at the core, it's, it's having an unawareness by the architects of these ideas themselves. And, you know, so to me, it's just uniquely un-American. Uh, that's not the country I moved to, uh, moved to in yeah. the 1990s. But anyway, okay, so I, got, I have to get to the Q&A, and there will be questions about this, and hopefully you all go back and rewind a lot of what Daniel said. Please read his books, by the way. A lot of these things, and it just uh, conveniently was over. I didn't tell him to have those two books over his, over his shoulder, but they're, <laughs> they're right there. Uh, the first question is actually the question I was going to ask you, too, um, and when I mentioned that there's some um, early signals of inflation peaking. And, and I am right on the screws the same, same timeline pretty much as you. Uh, which is again, it's, you're going to see the peak prints, you know, March, April, May. So by the time we get to June and July, the base effects kicked in, et cetera. Um, so what we're seeing now, and this question's from uh, Bill from Montana about oil as being a very good leading indicator for inflation, which is true. Um, oil in my model today, uh, and really it was mm. actually a big higher low and a, and a new higher high in the risk range. That just means, you know, it's likely going higher. 
but copper signaling its first lower high. And that's new. Copper was, as you know, uh, moved well ahead of oil. And the doctor copper, uh, as we like to call him or her, uh, is, uh, is, is a great leading indicator. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's there. So what do you think about that? Leading indicators fully loaded. That's what um, Bill's asking about. And, and, yeah. and why do you think there's a divergence between copper? At least, again, and I'm assuming that you're just taking my word for it on those, on those two in particular. Yeah. Uh, on oil... It's not a leading indicator right now for a simple reason, is that you have to add on top of all of these things that we have mentioned, the base effect, the recovery in demand, etc., and uh, an abrupt change in the OPEC policy by the new cut that was implemented by Saudi Arabia. So therefore, the, the signals on oil are probably going to last a little bit longer than on copper. But I think also very important iron ore. Copper and iron ore are telling us uh, a lot about this uh, peak of the inflationary cycle. You have you have seen how the the weak not the weakness but the the that they start to lose some of the momentum, hmm? and uh, those are very good indicators of two things now: of the growth in China and of the growth in the industrial sector. Therefore, I think that uh, when we look at copper. Uh, I think it's a pretty good signal. Uh, we have seen also some other commodities that are less uh, less industrial, but uh, but uh, but those two, copper and iron ore, are showing us that we are probably starting to look at this at this uh, sort of uh, peaking of the inflationary cycle in uh, in industrial commodities. Yeah, that I mean, this is about as new of a signal, and again, it can either mean a short-term consolidation and then it's back to new highs. That's actually what copper. Uh, did back a month and a half ago, and then it blasted to a new high quickly. Um, but again, you get, you know, you obviously had the, the shutdowns in Texas on the WTI side. There's a lot going on in, in the oil market. Um, to me, because so many of, of our clients and subscribers want me to get out of quad two and just get on with it into the quad yeah. four setup, uh, I deal with this one a lot. So thank you for, uh, Holding my hand a little bit on that. <laughs> the, um, this this next question from Logan is a very interesting one, and I'm assuming it's something that you said uh, that triggered this. But if it didn't, just you know, say so. Uh, Daniel, can you explain your thesis on how a small rise in bond yields may create a financial crisis, and how um, how does how does this go for the ECB in particular? Yes. Um, think about this. Um, any central bank in a normal environment of recovery would be more than comfortable with a small increase in bond yields like the one that we're seeing, which is basically just from very depressed levels, depressed artificially, go to uh, at least move in tandem with inflation expectations. So that would be a healthy signal of a recovery and of improving inflation expectations, wouldn't it? However, in the case of so many economies, countries have become so addicted to low rates that a very modest increase in bond yields would create a solvency issue. Think mm. about the Eurozone. You have all of the Eurozone economies, all of them, uh, issuing bonds at negative yields. Okay? So, what is the problem? The problem is that a marginal increase, a marginal increase uh, in the cost of borrowing can shake very quickly 
the foundations, not of just of the sovereign issuer, but also of all of the uh, issuers in the uh, in investment grade and in, in the high yield area. Why? Because the economy is so leveraged to very low rates and high liquidity that a very small increase in bond yields can cause a domino effect that starts with sovereign bonds, continues with investment grade, goes to high yield, goes to equities, and generates a big hole in banks that were already in trouble in 2019. Remember that the European banks had 900 billion of non-performing loans already in that time. So imagine where non-performing loans go <laughs> in that domino effect scenario. Think about emerging markets. Emerging markets, for the first time in a very long time, and I'm not sure you and I have seen this in a long time, we are seeing commodities rise, exports rise, but their currencies are falling. Yeah. No? So I think that one of the big problems that we have right now is precisely that, is that the economy is so indebted and is so geared to... Uh, very low rates and high liquidity that a very small change can cause an abrupt move in the financial markets. Yeah, in, in, in fractal math, we would say those are emergent properties. When the rates of change move the other way, then the direction that created the exactly. stability, uh, whammo. It happens slowly and then it happens all at once. Yeah. We say this all the time. It's not unlike an earthquake. Yeah. That's why when we're, when we're talking about a the question had to do about a crisis or a crash. I mean, that's that's quite quite literally how it works. Um, so that's that's a very good answer to that question. Uh, this question has to do with uh, Bitcoin, and uh, Rocky asking this question. Uh, Lagarde was first to come out and speak on regulating Bitcoin's funny business. Uh, Powell doesn't seem to be very vocal on it, and Yellen speaks negatively on it. Um, do you see governments influenced by central bankers? towards regulating this this bitcoin or uh or not like how, how do you think about the the future path in terms of adopting it ignoring it fighting it etc um governments and central banks don't like competition in issuing money they don't like <laughs> it okay and right now bitcoin is a concern, but not a worry, is it's sort of an anecdote that they're looking at in surprise, in awe, but they're not. But it's not a threat. Hmm? When it becomes a threat, Mr. Hayek, Frederick von Hayek, many years ago before the internet existed, <laughs> wrote this book, Choice in Currency: Now a Way to Stop Inflation. In this book, Frederick von Hayek explained how governments start by talking about uh, alternatives to fiat currency, to government fiat currency, as, a, as, a, as a, an anecdote to uh, considering them a threat. Now, regulating Bitcoin from the perspective of facilitating transparency, improving, that is not a problem. When they talk about regulating, they're not talking about that. When they're talking about regulating, they're talking about looking for ways to suppress the possibility of Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies becoming a threat to fiat currencies. Why? Because central banks are considering the possibility, not the possibility, the, the project of a digital currency. Hmm? So what they're aiming at is not to reduce 
the control and the uh, and the discretionary policies of central banks, but to increase them. No, uh, and in in that environment, it is unquestionable that governments and central banks may do whatever they can to stop Bitcoin from going from an anecdote or uh, or a headline to a threat. Yeah, I think Neil House, uh, he's at least one of the first people that I've heard say it, and it was a while ago. He's like, look, you know, these governments are going to eventually just copy the technology and adopt it as their own. It's not something, they want to control this. That's what, you know, to your yeah. point, that, that's, that's what they do. Um, yeah. So it is interesting. I mean, Janet Yellen's uh, interesting in a lot of political regards. Isn't it amazing that she was apolitical as the head of the Federal Reserve and then uh, magically transforms at this age into this political wonder um yeah. but you know so she she's of course bought and paid for by wall street so she doesn't like bitcoin at all uh that that's it's an interesting one um i, I do have a question for you on that like when you look at uh, when you look at the current because this is a different cocktail than you and i have have had on any other st patrick's day uh this one is the one where you quite literally have two labor economists cc rouse from harvard uh, who's running the cea of course and then um janet yellen the labor economist from princeton you know, combined on both sides of Powell, and 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 that's a different setup than what you and I have had to pay attention to for our entire career. Where there's the Treasury, you know, the Treasury is what it is; it's politicized, um, but it isn't anything remotely close to what we're seeing now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that what we're seeing right now is for the first time um, very ideological perspectives yeah. on uh, fiscal and monetary policy not just from the uh, position of uh, one of the members of the cabinet or uh, but from both and i think that that uh, makes a big difference i think that it makes a big difference because i think we will see any and every opportunity taken by the new administration to try to uh, break whatever is left of the central bank independence, the Federal Reserve's independence, to break it as quickly as possible. I think that that is a risk, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm just upset that they they busted my cartoon, guys, on slide 87, my favorite uh, Bob Rich cartoon on the history of the Fed. I think you've seen this. It was much better before you got the tall guy at the end of it. I mean, it's been, you know, maybe we'll turn that red and red tape into toilet paper, I don't know, but at the end of the <laughs> at the end of the day, yeah, you know, she's still there, and that's um, yeah, that's uh, you know, guys. Go to the slide before that. This is another question that I wanted to pop to you before we go. Um, she is the mother of all doves. I mean, and yeah. I think that you know, like when you look at a market like this and the liquidity and really the window. Like I don't, yeah. I, 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 I'm long. Okay, I'm not gonna, yeah. I'm not gonna make shit up like I'm not. I mean, I'm long. I've been long for a while here. It's as, as yeah. recklessly long as some may have uh, accused me of being, and I like it, you know, because I've never really got this part of the movie right. Um, yeah. you know, I was too young in 1999 to even know I was in a movie. Uh, now, now so, so here we are, and, and I, if it ends on April the 28th or on my wife's birthday on the 17th, then I'm fine. I'm out, yeah. you know. But in the meantime, we still haven't seen what she and Bernanke truly believe, which they can suppress gravity. They can take yeah. market volatility and put it to the all-time lows. If in that chart, the ATL on that chart, the all-time low of the VIX, as you know, you know, she's yeah. got her name on it. And to me, that's still one part of the movie we haven't seen. This, this equity market's gotten in the U.S. To where it is on a VIX that you know chops between 20 and 30, not below yeah. 10. 
I think that um, uh, we need to remember we need to remember the tenure of uh, Miss Yellen at the Federal Reserve because it was the biggest missed opportunity to normalize policy ever seen. Huh? She had a growing economy. She had a recovering economy with uh, uh, unemployment coming down with all of the figures uh, being in line with the target. Yet into the latter part of the tenure, uh, decided not to hike rates and decided to maintain policy at any cost. I think that that, that shows that there she has a view, which she has always had, of that that the risk of seeing bubbles generated in equity or, or bond markets is much smaller for her uh, than the uh, alternative, which is that there could be a significant backlash in terms of the economy. Yeah. Now, the problem is leverage. No, the problem is leverage. The problem is that it's funny that we talk about today that uh, that things are a lot different than when they, how they were before. But just, we just have to see the, the elevated levels of debt and the elevated levels of uh, uh, complacency that there are that there that we see in 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 markets so i think that you still have yeah, until you you have basically right now three things hope uh, uh narrative and policy hope is based on after the reopening, massive increase in consumption, huge re return to growth, and back to party. Uh, very difficult because we need to look at where we were in 2019 when the economy was already slowing down. We're not going back to high growth, high productivity. We're going back to low growth, low productivity. Second is the idea that policy will keep every single risk subdued. Mm -hmm. Well. That cannot happen eternally. It can happen for a while, of course, but it cannot happen eternally, particularly because there is a point in which the diminishing returns of policy are so evident that we are seeing it right now. I mean, I was speaking with some ECB, uh, European Central Bank officials, after they made a very dovish comment uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they were saying, I don't understand why markets are not uh, uh, correcting uh, rapidly the the increase in bond yields. Well, because because of the diminishing returns of monetary policy, is that it's not the same to have rates uh, that are at a nominal re and real negative level than to have them slightly above that level. So I think that the the biggest threat to the Fed right now and to the Biden administration is that you cannot bet on one thing and the opposite all the time, is that you cannot bet on the need to massively increase uh, the deficit and increase monetary policy and low rates while you believe that the economy is growing and un unemployment is coming back to full employment. So she will test those limits, I'm mm -hmm. completely sure, because she did. Uh, it's, it's not like, I'm um, oh, Here's somebody looking at the future. No, I'm looking at the past. Huh? And uh, she will test the limits because she did. And Biden will test the limits, the limits because they did. Mm -hmm. That's a, it's, it's such a great point. And, and I think that this is, uh, if you were to take a, a unifying theme of all the conversations I've had, and unfortunately we have to, to come to an end with this one, you know, people really understand at this point that it is using your word 
it's an ideology. And when you yeah. have an ideology about an asset you know, holding of, of, of a certain thing or of a certain policy path, you're going to ride that, as you've said multiple times in this conversation, right to the end. And yeah. unfortunately, history does not look back kindly on perma ideologies or perma positions in anything. And that's, um, yeah, that's a, uh, thank you for doing that. I mean, all the books that are behind you, uh, in addition to the ones that you actually written, uh, I believe that of all the people that I know in the world that does all of his historical time series reading and homework, you're looking at that guy right now. And uh, I, I think you did a great job educating people. So thank you very much for that. Thank you very much. It's been a great, great pleasure as always. And, and keep the good work because it is so important to have people uh, talking about reality and, and, and giving good investment advice uh, in real time. That is that, you know, uh, it's invaluable. Thank you very much. Great to see you, man. Uh, he is Daniel V. Daniel Lacaye. Thanks for joining us. I'll be right back with the last one. Mike T. Thanks for listening to our podcast. As a reminder, new Hedgeye subscribers may qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.